Our lesson this morning came from the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about what Jesus says about integrity, about honesty, and about oaths. And while everyone pretty well knows that you shouldn't make a vow to God and then uh, intentionally not keep it, Jesus takes it a step further than that. He doesn't only say don't uh, vow falsely. He doesn't only say don't lie. But he goes a step further and says don't even make vows. Vows themselves are rendered entirely unnecessary to a person of integrity and a person of honesty. Jesus wants a community of followers who are known for being so honest, whose integrity is without question, that a vow is entirely unnecessary for them. As a matter of fact, a vow could only serve a negative purpose if you're already a person of integrity. A vow can produce uh, levels of honesty in your speech to where this kind of vow you have to keep, this kind of vow not so much. And if there's no vow at all, well, who's to say whether you have to keep it or not? Jesus is saying, no, if a vow is supposed to strengthen your honesty, then what does it mean if you don't make one? Does it mean you could be less honest? No, that, that a vow only produces fodder for, uh, for manipulation of another person. So don't do them. They, they have an evil origin. They have an evil purpose, in essence. And so vows, they can produce dishonesty. They give you varying levels of, uh, of the need to be honest, and so don't do that. He also critiques them because a vow implies more control over your life, the future, and someone else's life than you actually have. If you can't even change, you know, one color of your hair, uh, then what makes you think that you can make a vow about something that's going to happen two days from now, or a month from now, or a year from now? You have no idea what's going to happen two days from now, a month from now, or a year from now. And so instead of, of uh, making your speech more certain in the things that you say, Make it more humble in the things that you say. Uh, if you say you're going to do something, say yes. And let that be as strong as, as any vow anyone else offers. In the community of Jesus, our yes is more binding than any vow anyone else can ever come up with. And our no is more binding than any vow anyone else could ever come up with. And when, when you do speak about the future, try to speak uh, with, with humility, recognizing the fact that there are variables outside of your control that might uh, affect whether or not you're able to do a certain thing. So instead of saying, yes, I swear I will do it, say, I will try to do it. Say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this. But humility in speech is a lot, um, there's a lot more wisdom with that than there is in making everything uh, so much more certain. I, I love the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, and I didn't, I didn't bring the quote with me right now, but uh, he, he had this awesome idea. Uh, it's one we should, all, we should all think about, to become a morally perfect human. Uh, and he thought he could do it. He, he, he's a very rational person, and he rationalized himself the thought of, you know what, I'm smart, and I'm smart enough to know, given any situation I face, what the moral choice is in that situation. I think I can always uh, make that choice. And if I can make that choice, then that means all I have to do is just always do that, and I'll become morally perfect. If I just always do the morally superior option, then, then I'll reach moral perfection. And so he started kind of dividing up his life into the different areas where he could exercise moral perfection. And he came up with a list, I think it was of 12, uh, of the areas that he could master 
to become a morally perfect uh, person. And he was reminded, I think it was by a Quaker friend of his, uh, about one that he might want to add to the list, which was humility. Um, that's one that he said often escaped him. And that's also one that he said, that's the one that's going to throw the whole thing out of whack because as soon as I start to reach moral perfection, I'm probably going to become proud of the fact that I've reached moral perfection. And that pride is going to undo the humility that's part of that moral perfection. So I'll never attain it. Um, but so anyway, it's, it's, it's kind of a funny, uh, you know, paragraph or, or, or chapter that he's writing about. But one of the things that he mentioned that he does uh, is he tries, and this is very different than in his youth. In his youth, if he was going to contradict someone, if he was going to, you know, in a debate, win the debate, he would try to show how utterly foolish his opponent was. He would use uh, words like, well, obviously it's the case, or anyone can see this, or, oh, this is certainly true. He said one of the changes that he made is that he tried to, instead of making his point that much more certain, he would, he would uh, add a little restraint to that. He would say something like, well, at present, it seems to me that, that this is the superior choice. Or, okay, that's a good point, but here's why I choose this, and this is why. And he realized simply by making little changes like that, a couple of things happened. One, he didn't alienate the person he was talking to quite as much. Uh, once, you, once you make it sound like, oh, any idiot can see, and the person doesn't agree with you, what have you just called that person? <laughs> you've, you've called them an idiot. And what happens if they find out they're wrong? Well, they're not going to want to admit it at all. You've made it really hard to even, to even come closer to agreeing with you because they'll have to admit that they're a fool in order to agree with you. And no one wants to do that, and so you've, you've got their pride involved. So don't do that. If, if you say... Oh, that's a good point. But here's why I do this. They might be more willing to be like, oh, okay, I can see that. I didn't see that before. But there's very little sacrifice on their part to agree with you if you don't make them feel like a fool. And so that was one of the benefits of it. The other benefit is that sometimes I'm wrong. You know, Benjamin Franklin realized that when, when he's wrong, it's a lot less embarrassing to be wrong if you say, okay, well, here's why this is what I'm thinking right now, or that's a good point, but here's why I choose this, or at present, these are my thoughts, it, because you've, you've allowed for new information to, to be factored in so that you could possibly change your mind. And if you do that, then it's, it's not embarrassing at all. And those are just ways of adding humility to speech. When, you, when you're having a debate with someone, when you're talking with someone about some issue in the Bible, certainly I think it's important to do. Use words and phrases that allow for uh, new information to change your mind, that allow for their position to at least uh, have some respectability, even if you don't agree with it, and that allow either of you to make an easy change if the evidence warrants it. Uh, don't, don't, it's hard enough to admit that you're wrong it becomes a whole lot harder when the person you're talking to is proud and arrogant and makes you feel like a fool for being wrong. Then at every cost you don't want to say you're wrong, and that just puts up walls in the conversation. And so that's some of the benefit of adding humility to our arguments and discussions with other people. Jesus wants us to add humility to our vows to other people uh, or to uh, our, our words to other people, even if we're not making vows. Uh, if you say you're going to do something, that's fine. You can, you can say yes and you can say no, but don't make it more certain than you actually can offer. Uh, like I said, James uh, later in the New Testament will say, use words like, if the Lord wills, then, 
then you say what you're going to say. Uh, because you don't know the future, and you can't um, always predict it, and you can't always change it. And so humility makes it less likely that you're going to be wrong. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 5, if you want to turn there, it dives into this a little bit more. And what Jesus says sounds a lot like what is said in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it talks about being very careful when you uh, approach God or say things about or on behalf of God or even make vows in the name of God or when you make promises to other people, be very careful as you do that. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, begins by saying, Guard your steps as you go near to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that uh, what they are doing is evil. He says, when you're approaching the house of God, when you're approaching the temple, do it reverently, do it carefully, and go to listen and learn rather than to go and offer the sacrifice of fools. Now, the sacrifice of fools, you can interpret that a couple of different ways. I don't think, I don't think every sacrifice is a sacrifice of fools, but maybe the sacrifice of someone who they offer sacrifice uh, one day, but the next day they live in such a way that, that uh, defiles the very word of God. That would be the sacrifice of a fool. Uh, you can see sacrifices often in the Bible that are not accepted for that reason. Uh, and what I think Ecclesiastes is saying is, if you're even going to offer sacrifice, do it carefully. Recognize that you're approaching the holy, perfect, and true God of Israel, and even worship to him should not be done flippantly. You shouldn't think, oh, I'm worshiping God. What's the worst that can happen? (laughs) Bad stuff can happen. Uh, You read like about Nadab and Abihu. Even approach God carefully in worship uh, because it it matters. He's that holy. He's that, and and we should approach him with that much reverence. So when you go to to offer sacrifice, do so carefully. In verse 2 is where he carries that same idea over into our speech. He says in verse 2, and do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. If you're going to say something about God, by the way, as like a preacher, this is, this is probably something I should, uh, you know, take to heart. Uh, if you're going to be talking about the God of heaven, if you're going to be bringing matters before God, that's a pretty awesome responsibility. And it's a powerful thing to do. And when you go to and approach God in prayer, that is something that should be done with reference, recognizing who it is that you're speaking to, recognizing he's in heaven and you're on earth. That means he's kind of different than us. That means that he is seeing the world from an entirely different vantage point than we are. That means that he's eternal and we are not. He has a lot more information than we do. So approach him with humility and even let your words be few. The more you speak, the more your mouth is open, the more likely your foot is to get in there. So, so be careful when you speak. And then, uh, if you look at verse 4, he takes that idea and applies it specifically to vows, like we've been talking about. Uh, he says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. And so what he's saying is, look, if you're going to make a vow, don't say, oh man, I'm kind of tired right now. I'll repay it tomorrow. No, if you're going to do that, you repay it as soon as possible because there is no delight that comes from being the fool who vowed something to God and then did not follow through on it. 
Pay what you vow and do it as soon as you can. It's not a good feeling to be in debt uh, to a person, uh, to be in debt to, to, uh, to a bank. And it certainly isn't a good feeling to have made a vow to God and then you're not keeping up your end of the deal. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a dangerous place to be. God is more important than any bank or any person. If you make a vow to him, it's a very serious thing. And so he says, pay it quickly. In fact, verse 5, he kind of goes and thinks about it a little bit more and says, in fact, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And I think that's where you get very close to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, don't make any vows at all. Like, that, it, when you do it, you're only opening the door for evil to slip in. Uh, you're either going to be wrong and not fulfill it, or you're manipulating someone. So don't even go the route of vows. And, and Ecclesiastes is saying that same thing. It's like, if you make a vow, all you've done is put more pressure on yourself, and you might fail. So don't do it. it it's not needed. You don't have to do it. And so he says it's better to not vow at all than to vow, and for some reason, maybe even outside of your control, to not pay it. Verse 6, do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not lay in the presence of the messenger of God that it was, a, or say in the presence of a messenger of God, that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So it's like, don't, don't make a vow and then realize, oh, I can't pay it, and say, oh, it was a mistake. It was a mistake. I'm sorry. Well, you shouldn't have made the vow to begin with. All you've done is set yourself up for failure. And so all of these are ways of saying God is very important. And when we approach him, we should approach him with reverence, with fear. As though we're, we're talking to someone serious. Uh, and if you're going to make a vow, first of all, probably don't. <laughs> Second of all, if you're going to, don't delay in paying it. It's not a small deal. Take it very seriously. If you, when you speak with God, speak with humility be careful and recognize that there's a lot that's outside of your control. There's a lot you cannot predict. You can get yourself into a bad situation promising something to God, then not being able to fulfill it. We're going to talk tonight, uh, for the rest of the lesson, about someone who did that very thing. Someone who made a hasty vow, and I think it was I think there were a couple of motivations uh, behind it, or a couple of, of reasons for it. Um, one of them is he wanted something, and I think he had a, a faulty view of God. Um, I think he had more of the pagan view of God, that uh, the only way God will bless me is if I earn it by, by offering something great to him. And so he makes a vow, something that he'll give to God if God gives him a victory in battle. And then he makes an offer, and something unexpected happens that throws his offer. It's not at all what he intended, and uh, it ends up costing him very, very dearly. It ends up costing other people, too. Um, if you don't know, uh, we're talking about a guy named Jephthah in the book of Judges. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Judges. We're going to talk a little bit about this story, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the offer or the offering uh, that Jephthah promised to God. But really, Judges 10 through 12, uh, about half of 12, is the story of Jephthah. Um, He's one of the judges of Israel. So when you go to the book of Judges, you got to be prepared uh, for some some rough stuff. Uh, Judges is not an easy book to read. It's not a particularly fun book. Uh, It is a book that is uh, dark, it is a book that is depressing, and it is a book that 
it shows the absolute depth of human depravity uh, when people try to live doing what is right in their own eyes apart from who God is. Um, the Judges, I think, is in essence the tragic story of Israel who, in the book of Joshua, got all of the Canaanites out of the land. Or not all of them, but a lot of the Canaanites out of the land. And then in the book of Judges, became those Canaanites and started doing so many of the exact same things that the Canaanites did. They got them kicked out of the land. Then Israel is the one God gives it to, and little by little, they become the Canaanites again. Uh, In Judges, uh, the story of Jephthah, I think, is very clearly one of those stories, uh, where Jephthah ends up doing the very types of things that uh, Canaanites would have done, and he does the very types of things in his uh, worship to God and in his understanding of God, that the Canaanites would have had in their worship and understanding of God. And so you have this pattern being followed. And as you keep reading Judges, this is one of many, many dark stories. I know there are uh, skeptics and and unbelievers uh, sometimes who attack the Bible. And one of the books that they often go to is the book of Judges to show how awful uh, God is and how all these horrible things happen in the Bible. And I mean, no, God's not awful, but yeah, you're right. Judges is intentionally showing all of the worst things and like that you could imagine. And I, and what you should not do when reading Judges is read about the characters and think, oh, okay, we should be like them. Like even like Samson, we teach little kids about him. Samson's not a particularly, uh, you know, he's not a character that you want to imitate. Uh, pretty much none of the judges are. You know, you might be able to find a decent one, uh, but n- there's none of them are like our our world class individuals. Uh, they all have deep, deep flaws, and what you're seeing is that. The only true hero of the book of Judges is God himself. And God saves a wicked people, often through wicked leaders. Uh, And it's because not they have earned righteousness in the sight of God, or not because they were deserving, or not because the judges were particularly great moral people, and so God decided to work through them. It's because God loved Israel and God keeps his promises to Israel even when they don't deserve it. And even when the best of their leadership is still pretty rotten. And I think Jephthah uh, is, is an example of that. He's, he's, he, throughout the whole story, you don't get the impression that he's a particularly good fellow. Um, and so, what's going on in the book of Judges? Well, uh, chapter 10, you know, we've gone through a couple of Judges already. You get to chapter 10 and the children of Israel are following this pattern where they uh, reject God for other gods. And it's the most absurd thing in the world because it's the gods of their neighbors that they keep going after. But these neighbors are the ones who keep like going to war with them and oppressing them. You would think that they would tend to hate those gods and hate those neighbors. But no, they end up wanting to be more like them. And they do it over and over again. It's, it's amazing to watch because humans still do it. And I still do it. I mean, people have a tendency to do this where the very thing that can harm you is the very thing that they end up seeking the most. And it's the, the thing that can cause you the most damage and the thing that has, has sometimes caused the most hardship in your life continues to be the thing that you crave. And the children of Israel are doing this with the other gods and they're doing this with their, their neighbors. And so what happens is they stop worshiping Yahweh and they start worshiping another god instead or they just add these other gods to their worship of Yahweh. But what ends up happening 
is uh, they turn against God and they forsake him. And then those other nations end up turning against them and God doesn't protect them anymore. And so then they end up in subjugation and oppression and slavery and they're miserable. And then they cry out to God and God over and over and over again, he rises, raises up some deliverer or some judge who will usually through a military success free them from that subjugation. And they'll say, oh God, thank you, we'll worship you again. And they do it for like seven minutes until they, they go back into the same pattern again. And it happens over and over and over and over. And we're talking about like roughly a 400-year period of this cycle continuing. And so uh, in Judges 10, that cycle is continuing again. Uh, if you look at verse 6, it says, The sons of Israel again— that's an important word— did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And so guess what happens? Uh, other nations rise up and they begin to oppress and take over Israel. Uh, the Ammonites in verse 9 become the the primary, uh, uh, the primary enemy here. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. And when that happens, then you have verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Okay, so they do it again. But um, at this point, they've done it so many times, I think God is starting to recognize insincerity. Uh, and so God responds to them, not in the way that, that God ordinarily uh, does in his words. He responds to them in verses 11 through 14. God said to the sons of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, like the, the people who were oppressing you? If you read earlier in the book of Judges, they already oppressed them and God already delivered them from them. Now they are oppressing them again. And so he says, didn't I already deliver you from the Amorites, the sons of Ammon and the Philistines? Verse 12, and when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hands. Yet... You have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. So what God says is, look, I've already done this over and over and over again. And, and you, you still, like even though I'm the only source of hope and salvation you have, you still go after these other gods. So I'm not going to do it. Let me tell you who to cry out to in verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods which you've chosen and let them deliver you in the time of your distress. So God says, quit coming to me if you're not going to serve me. If you're going to worship the other gods, give them a try. Give them a call. Why don't you pray to them and cry out to them and see if they will come and deliver you? Well, verse 15, the sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So then verse 16, they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he could no longer bear the misery of Israel. So God... 
he forgives again. Uh, he, you know, he, he'll sometimes say things like that, but then he'll still come through and, and forgive them. It's like, it's like uh, in, in Numbers 14 when uh, the, the children of Israel uh, were going to spy out the land, and they come back saying, they, well, we're not going to take the land. It makes it sound like God is going to, to choose someone else. Or, or even with Moses uh, when he was up on Sinai, and, um, and the children of Israel worshiping other gods, and they worship that golden calf that Aaron made. God brings up the option of finding a new people, but he never does it. He always sticks with Israel because he's the God of unfailing, steadfast love for these people who continually don't deserve it. He brings up—he's he, free to make these other choices, and yet he still comes back because he loves them. Uh, here, they do actually put away the other gods, and they begin to serve him. And so that's, that's where we find ourselves when Jephthah enters the picture. The Ammonites are oppressing Israel. Israel has finally decided to get rid of the other gods and to, and to worship God in, in the hopes that he will deliver them, and God decides that he's going to. Now we're told a little bit in chapter 11 of the backstory of a great and mighty warrior. His name is Jephthah. Um, Jephthah has a reputation of being a valiant warrior, someone who is mighty in battle and someone who can overcome and conquer enemies. But he's also the son of a prostitute. And that's going to cause some family conflict. See, his, his dad had a, a wife, and they had other, uh, other sons. But his dad also slept with a prostitute and had Jephthah. And so he has these half-brothers, and they're growing up together, and these brothers don't like Jephthah because he is the child of their father and a prostitute. And they don't want to split an inheritance with him, and so they end up driving him out of the family and out of the land, and he ends up going and living in the land of Tob, and he's there. Uh, He's still a great warrior, but he's rejected by his own people because they don't need a great warrior right now. And so he's rejected, and he lives out there. And what ends up happening while he's out there is he ends up uh, becoming uh, acquaintances with a lot of really rough and wicked people. Um, some, some have described him as like a mob boss type of guy. He's someone you don't want to mess with, and he's someone who's surrounded by uh, a big crew of, of wicked men, of cronies, who will do his bidding. But that's kind of the picture you get of him. He's not a very... Uh, He's not painted as a very good fellow. Uh, he's painted as someone who's a great warrior, someone who had a, a rough family life, someone who now lives on his own with a bunch of really rough and wicked people. All right. Well, once the sons of Ammon come uh, to, to oppress Israel, they're looking for a great uh, leader. They cry out to God, and God finally... Uh, uh, once they put away their gods, God hears, and he can't take their, their cries anymore, and he wants to save them. And then they go to Jephthah, and they say, hey, you're a great warrior. Come back and save us, and we'll make you the head over us. We'll make you our leader. And so they, very interesting, the parallels between what happens with God and Jephthah. Because with God, they push him out. They reject him so that they could have other gods. But then when the need arises, they go back to him. With Jephthah, they push him out. They reject him. But then when a need arises, they go back and they, they ask him to come. And what did God say when, uh, when the children of Israel finally cried out to him and said, Come, deliver us. He said in verse 11, Did I not deliver you from all of these people? This is chapter 10 and verse 11. And then verse 13, after I delivered you, he says, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Well, when they go to Jephthah, Jephthah, uh, in chapter 11 and verse 7, he says, 
Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? So why have you come to me now that you are in trouble? It's a very similar type of response to the one God gave. It's like you rejected me when you didn't need me, but now that I can offer you something, now you come. Once you're in trouble, now you're coming to me. And so Jephthah says that to them. And uh, verse 8, the elders of Gilead say to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight the sons of Ammon because, uh, and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so Jephthah said, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? And they say, the Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. So what they end up saying is, yeah, and if you give us the victory, we'll serve you. You'll be our head. You'll be our leader. Well, that's kind of like the promise they make to God, saying, look, if you deliver us, then we'll worship you. We're putting away the other gods. And so there's a lot of actual similarities between the children of Israel crying out to God for help and them crying out to Jephthah for help. But what we'll see is that God and Jephthah have a very different character. Uh, God is this ultimate source of love and good. He's their true savior. Jephthah is a powerful, mighty warrior surrounded by wicked men who, as we'll see, I don't think understands the Lord very well. I think that he has probably been influenced just like many of them have by all of the gods of of their neighbors. And and he has some of those ideas uh, still in his mind that, um, that the children of Israel would know of from their neighbors. And so, uh, Jephthah agrees, and he wants to go, uh, and he wants to make peace with the king of Ammon before deciding to go to war. And so he basically says, why, why are you oppressing Israel? Why are you attacking us? And what the king of Ammon says is, because that's our land, and you guys took it way back when you left Egypt, that, like the book of Joshua, when you, with the conquest, you guys took our land. Uh, you can read about it in Numbers and in Joshua. And so what Jephthah says is, no, that's not actually historically what happened. Uh, and he, he gives a pretty lengthy retelling of the story saying that, uh, you know, there were a number of nations that we were trying to go through, the Edomites, the Moabites, the, the Ammon, and all these, and we were rejected uh, through going there. They said, we didn't want you to pass through our land. And then you guys got an army together and attacked us because you didn't trust us. And so we won the battle, but that's not the same thing as just going in there and taking your land from you. We uh, fairly, in the rules of war, uh, conquered and won the land because you guys attacked us. But then also he moves on from that. If you look at verse 23 and 24, and I think this is a really important point that hints, perhaps, uh, that Jephthah might not have a a great understanding of Israelite uh, religion. He says in verse 23, Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites, not the Ammonites, but the Amorites uh, from before his people, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? For whatever the Lord your God has driven out before us, we will possess it. So here's what he says, is the land that we won in that battle was the land of the Amorites. And yet you're claiming that you should get that land. But the Lord gave us the victory. So that means the Lord wants us to have it. What about you and your God? Your God, Chemosh, he has given you land. Uh, You've won battles in one land. Do you not think that uh, you should keep the land that your God has given you? The logic is something like this. 
if you win a battle, then that is a sign from your God that he wants you to have that land. If you win it, then your God must be on your side. But basically, I think that's, that's the type of, of logic that got a lot of uh, nations into trouble because, you know, like manifest destiny. Like, like, if you go and if you can conquer, then that must mean your God is on your side and you can get the land. And so since we won, that means God is, wants us to have this land. And since you have your land, that means your God wants you to have your land. So you keep your land, we'll keep our land, and there's no need for us to have a battle. Uh, he's trying to maintain peace, but I think there's two assumptions in that. One of them uh, might be uh, uh, the, the, an assumption of, uh, of polytheism that you guys have a God, we have a God. He's given you your land, so keep it. We have our God who's given us our land, we'll keep this. We got it fair and square, and so let's not have this fight right now. Uh, plus, uh, he then says, and back then, uh, your kings didn't seem uh, that, that they were, uh, you know, they didn't think that they had a right to this land, so why are you trying to fight us now about it? So he gives a couple of, of reasons for it, but one of them, I think, is rooted in a misunderstanding of God and of uh, perhaps uh, of polytheism. Maybe he's just accommodating their view and, and mentioning their God out of respect for them, but I think perhaps he's not. Perhaps he thinks we all have our own gods that we all worship. So your God has given you your land. You keep it. Our God has given us our land. We'll keep it and we'll call it a day. Well, uh, the king of Ammon is unconvinced and he doesn't want to do that. And so he gets ready for battle. And so, uh, so does Jephthah. Jephthah is going to go to battle too. But before going to battle, he calls out on his God and uh, the Lord in verse 30 and 31. And he says, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes, or you could translate that, uh, whomever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it or offer them uh, up as a burnt offering. So he promises whatever comes out to meet him afterwards, he's going to offer to the Lord. That's the vow that he makes. So we started off this lesson talking about vows. Well, that's the vow Jephthah makes. Um, he didn't have to say that. Like, there was no, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says before you go to battle, you have to make God a promise like this. Um, there are a couple of potential ways of interpreting this in the story that follows. But basically what happens is Jephthah then goes to the battle. He is successful. And as he's coming home, he looks out in verse 35... And or verse 34, as he's coming uh, home, Jephthah came to the ha- his house at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child, and besides her, he had no son or daughter. And so as he's coming back, after having vowed that whatever comes out to greet him, he would offer to the Lord's and would be a burnt offering, it's then his only child, it's his daughter that he sees coming out. Um, he cries about it in verse 35. He saw her, he tore his clothes, and he said, Alas, my daughter, uh, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. And the daughter then says, If you made a vow to God, we need to keep it. Uh, and so, uh, which is, I guess, a, a particularly understanding view. Um, but uh, she says that, but she does ask for two months that she can go to the mountains and weep because of her virginity. I and my companions. And he says, go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. Then in verse 39, it says, at the end of two months, she returned to her father, 
who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went out to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. And so it becomes a custom that for four days the daughters of Israel would go out and, and, uh, and uh, commemorate or honor or remember, uh, perhaps mourn for uh, the daughter of Jephthah. So there's a couple of different ways of reading this. Uh, we don't have time to, to get into too much of them, but uh, some people think that Jephthah when he made the vow, was expecting to see an animal on the way home uh, rather than a person. So he was very caught off guard when it was uh, a person. Um, that, I, with each of these, that might be true. Um, I, don't, I think it's possible that he was expecting it to be a servant uh, and that he was just influenced by the, the human sacrifice that took place in the nations around them. Um, uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. One, I think if he was talking about an animal, he probably could have said, I was talking about an animal, and, you know, and, and not felt bound to sacrifice a human when he was saying, I'm going to sacrifice whatever animal comes out. Uh, you know, I, I guess there's some ambiguity in his wording there, but it seems to me that he was expecting it to be a person, and, uh, and he was expecting it to come out of the door to greet him, which, may, you know, we, we, I guess, think of, like, dogs, you know, coming out to greet us sometime, but that seems more of a human action. Um, and so, again, it's hard to know for certain. Uh, I, I don't think it's surprising if Jephthah might have intentionally been uh, talking about human sacrifice, but he certainly wasn't expecting it to be his own daughter. He thought it would be a servant or someone less important to him. Um, But then another way of interpreting it, some people have said, is uh, that he did, was talking about sacrifice, um, but with his daughter, instead of offering her up as a burnt offering, he uh, gave her to perhaps the temple in service to the Lord to remain a virgin who served at the temple uh, for the rest of her life. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if you look at the way it's worded after he meets her, it never actually says that he offered her as a burnt offering. It does say he fulfilled his, the vow that he made to the Lord. And if you go back and read that vow to the Lord, it says that... Um, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it as a burnt offering. Some people think, well, maybe it's like, it shall be the Lord's, meaning offered to the temple, or if it's an animal, it would be a burnt offering. And they kind of make a distinction there. Uh, grammatically, I, I think that would be unlikely, but, uh, but some people kind of take it that way. And so they think that similar to Samuel, uh, what, what Hannah did at the beginning of, of 1 Samuel, she offered to give to the Lord uh, whatever child the Lord blessed her with, and then she had Samuel, and so Samuel served in the temple. Uh, a situation kind of like that, which is why when you read through it, there, there's so much mourning about her virginity uh, rather than her death. Uh, most of what, uh, you know, she's weeping for her virginity. Uh, the, they go and they uh, um, um, It says in verse 39 that he did to her according to the vow which he made, and she had no relations with a man. And so does that mean like he he offered her to be a perpetual virgin? That's the way some people take it. Um, I'll be honest— I think that's probably not what happened. Uh, I think he probably. I think it's probably more likely that Jephthah uh, made an offer about sacrifice, and then he offered the sacrifice. Um, that you, you have to add a little bit in there to have him giving her over to the temple and that. And it it's not that surprising that the virginity is a key point, even if she's going to be killed, 
because that Jephthah didn't have any other sons or daughters. And so on the one hand, it's kind of a curse to himself because uh, he's not able to continue his family line anymore. Uh, her being a virgin kind of seals that. But also her purpose as a, uh, as a woman and as a uh, potential wife and mother uh, in ancient Israel would have been seen as something that is fulfilled in her having offspring and having children. And yet she was never able to do that. And so uh, I'll also say in verse 40, the fact that it becomes a yearly commemoration uh, seems to be much more fitting with someone who has died than with someone who is uh, simply unmarried uh, or, or a virgin serving the temple. You don't see that type of thing happen a lot uh, for people. So anyway, th- those are, there's a lot of theories about this text because really it's a dark text. Um, it's, it's a tragic text, and I think that we want to find something less dark there. We want to find something a little bit lighter there. But I think what you have is the children of Israel slowly but surely becoming the Canaanites. And I think this text shows it. But there are some things that we can learn about vows. Uh, One of them being, it's really important to know God and to know who he is before you say or do or talk about him. I don't think Jephthah had a good understanding of who God was. And I think that ended up uh, harming him when he made this vow. Uh, Two, don't make vows. (laughs) You don't need to. And that's what Jesus eventually says. Don't do it. Uh, It's going to end up putting you in a bad position. Now, you know, Jephthah, I'll be honest, maybe maybe I lack integrity, but uh, if if I had made a foolish vow that I was going to offer whatever came out to see me, and it was my son, now I'm torn between two sins, either breaking a vow or human sacrifice, which is absolutely repudiated by God, I tell you which I'm choosing. I'm breaking the vow. I'm saying, oh, I didn't expect that. It was a mistake. It was a foolish vow. Um, that's what Ecclesiastes say, says, don't make vows, because you could end up saying it was a mistake. It was a foolish vow. Don't make foolish vows. I think Jephthah might have gone through with fulfilling the vow again, because he didn't understand God. He, he thought it would be better to offer human sacrifice. That's something gods accept. You know, that's something that if you look around the Molech and the other gods, they, they accept that type of thing. So maybe that's the better choice than to, to anger a god by making a false vow. So I think if you don't know who God is, then learn about him. Try to come to know about him, but then also, most importantly, to come to know him, because that could save you a lot of heartache. And also... Only speak with humility. Something unexpected happened here in the life of Jephthah that he was not prepared for, he was not expecting, because we don't know the future. So don't speak about it with certainty, and don't make vows with certainty, but always allow for humility, allow for uh, variables which might impact the future uh, to play their role before you guarantee that you will do something that you have no business doing. Uh, I think Jephthah is an important lesson in that. Um, so if uh, there is anyone here uh, who would like to become a Christian tonight or would like the prayers of the church, uh, this lesson doesn't lend itself to, to a smooth transition with the invitation. But uh, if there is anyone here who has that need, please let it be known. We love you and we'd love to help you. Uh, if you can come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.